Deep Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing. I'm He Yang. Good to have you join us. A recent report says that folks who once left big cities during the pandemic are now moving back. As the world braces for an uncertain post-pandemic economy, does big city life still have its appeal? Has the last three years made us see clearer what we truly value the most in life? And keep sending us your comments, thoughts, and questions to ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. We give you a response in our heart-to-heart segment. Audio clips are preferred, but emails will do. We would love to have a heart-to-heart with you. For today's program, I'm joined by Ding Hung in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show. Urban flight from big metropolitan centers to smaller cities and towns in the wake of COVID-19 was big news around the world. Pandemic-related restrictions, changing economic prospects, and the acceleration of remote working have altered perceptions of the benefits of living in big cities. And this was the familiar story shared in many countries in the last three years. Now, recent news reports point out that many people People who once escaped big cities for small towns are now moving back. Here in China, we can take one of the biggest cities, Beijing, as a specimen. The pandemic prompted droves of people to move out, and now are they coming back? Ding Hong, what do you say? Yeah, so I think、uh, according to a recent report published by Sunlian Life Lab, which is a Chinese lifestyle media outlet, I think it's a magazine. Some people who left Beijing in the past few years now decide to come back. And initially, they left for different, various kinds of reasons. Some were attracted by small cities. Say incentive policies to attract talents with higher education level. Some left、uh, cities like Beijing because of the pandemic reasons, some pandemic-related issues. Some left due to private reasons. For example, they need to take care of their elderly family. Parents, etc., etc. But、uh, really, it seems that after living in the new destination cities for a period of time, for a couple of years, they finally f- have.、Um, Uh, come to realize and find out that Beijing still represents the best place for them to work in, and they decided to come back for various of reasons or incentives.、Hmm. Does this sound like a familiar story to you, Josh? Given the fact that now we increasingly put the pandemic in the rear view mirror, and、um, mm-hmm. maybe the big cities still has its allure to. Young people or folks seeking jobs in general. Do you see that here in Beijing or in London? What is your observation? Yeah, I think that there's a similar story all over the world, actually. And of course, people—the big city exodus. I'm not sure how 
accurate that statement really is, to be honest, because these cities still seem to be increasing in population size and seem to be going as strong as ever. So I don't know if there's as big a quote unquote exodus as the media is making out, to be honest. But still, I think that the pandemic did make a lot of people realize that, well, I don't necessarily need to work at this job and physically be there. Maybe I can still have a career and even work from home. And if I can work from home, then in theory, I can work from anywhere physically, right? But as was just mentioned, I think that people are starting to realize that there's actually a whole lot of pros to living in a big city. Um, and I think that there's also quite a lot of negatives um, to working from home. Uh, things like boredom. I know myself, uh, this may seem like something that to some people may not be that important. I guess it depends on your character. But I know the number one thing for me was that after working from home for a long time during the pandemic, I was just bored. I, I felt lifeless having to just go from my bed to my desk every day. Um, and also on top of that, something a bit more tangible is career marginalization and a lack of opportunity to grow. Um, when you're physically in the company and you're making those um, you're networking and you have those kind of relationships, uh, you have a better opportunity to, to grow and you can see where your career is going. So I think that uh, this is also a, a factor. There's a lot of other factors that I'd like to mention today, but those are just some of the ones that, that I have when, it, when I first think about this issue. Right. So are you saying that all these factors of um, making remote work not as great as it might appear to be at first glance, then these are the factors that make people come back to the city instead of working in a place that, um, in, instead of working remotely, which where you physically is located might not really matter all that much. Yeah, I, I think I think I agree with that point. Um, and also, I think that something that we have to keep in mind here that's very important is that working remotely in the context of COVID-19 during the pandemic is very different to working remotely when the pandemic is has gone away, right? Um, and now we're in that time. And although working remotely, for example, or not just working remotely, but leaving a big city, for example, during the pandemic may have been a lot more appealing, I think it just doesn't necessarily work anymore. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting observation. And I think there's um, a degree of truth to that. I like to use the example of, let's say, a salesperson. And this is now, you know, after the pandemic. If you've got a salesperson that knocks at your door, comes to your office and speak to you about this big deal that they're trying to get you to sign and also, you know, present presence, well, of course, following all business rules and, you know, saying nice words and with the firm handshake and friendly demeanor and all that um, would be far more persuasive or possibly trustworthy as opposed to somebody that you just speak to over Zoom. Yeah. And if these two people are competing to get your uh, to get you to sign that deal, then um, it might be quite obvious, of course, considering other factors as well, which one you would choose. So, Ding Hung, what do you see as um, mm. the factors that might weigh against others that make someone feel that, yes, I would like to come back to the city? 
Yeah, I think、uh, one reason is that、uh, they many of these、uh, young people we are talking about here they want to leave the so-called comfort. Zone, right? Because I guess the initial reason why they left big cities like Beijing or Shanghai is that they they are tired of the very fast pace of daily life and work in big cities, in first-tier cities, and they want to have a more relaxing, easier daily life. But、mm. when they are really moving into that kind of more relaxed situation, they feel. As if they were at a loss, they were less motivated. So,、uh, once again, they they feel like okay, they are still young. I still want to work hard to to make enough money for me and my family to accumulate enough wealth. So yeah, that's the motivation that drives them to go back to the city. Because、um, really, one typical scenario I can think of is that、um, yeah, maybe under some circumstances they are attracted by by these、uh, smaller cities,、um, local you know human resources policy in terms of attracting talents from first tier cities. So they they were attracted, but、uh, when they are really in that situation or, or in that particular. Position,、um, yeah. I guess their new employers in in smaller cities have a lot of、uh, expectation for them,、mm. and、uh, initially they also want to contribute greatly. But、uh, maybe there is a very sad reality that、uh, there is no one who can help them to contribute to a higher goal. Right? They are the only fighter, and they feel like.、Um, There are a lot of things that they cannot do alone. So、oh. probably going back to big cities where they can find like-minded people with equal, you know, qualification, education level, and expertise. Maybe that's easier to get things done. I think that those are some valid points. There's another few points that I'd like to add on here、uh, that I think may also explain. Not actually. My own, I got this from somebody else. There's actually、um, Y. C. Copermis, who is an associate professor of management at the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas in Austin. They did some research and they found that remote employees often work more to make up for the lack of face-to-face -face time with colleagues. So this is another factor、um, that maybe. Doesn't shine remote work in the same light that maybe it did before,、um, because I think we have this idea that we may have more free time if we work remotely. Also, they found that remote employees might see their cost of living improve, but there are no guarantees to that actually. And I have an example here from the U.S.、Um, at Facebook Meta. Now,、uh, it was quite recently reported that companies like、uh, Facebook. We're going to offer remote workers localized compensation that will line up with their cost of living. What that what that basically means is, in other words, is that they won't be taking the same salary that they would have earned in the big city back to the small town where they'll be working, and and they wouldn't also have access to some of the perks that the big tech companies typically offer, like. Free food. We we all heard about these big tech company campuses, for example, that are in the cities. Free food. If you work at a big enough company, they may offer a lot of benefits like free childcare if you have a family、um, and stuff like this.、Um, so I think that a, a lot of employees actually want to return to the office as well or return to the big city because they also like that culture, friends, colleagues,、uh, and on top of that. 
a, a better standard of living depending on what you want out of life, right? I think especially a lot of younger workers definitely are looking to network and have friends and have a social life around work. And I guess the big city also offers this. Yes, it does. Uh, aside from that, there are a lot of other amenities, entertainment, leisure, and a more maybe exciting life that young people tend to be drawn to. And on top of that, if you have a pretty good job, then it sounds great. But of course, reality isn't always so simple. And I just like to circle back to one thing that Ding Ho mentioned earlier. And, um, and I think it does ring true to the situation of a lot of Chinese young people who are, in a way, when you look at this, especially compared to our parents' generation, it is a privilege or it is at least one more choice. That is, you can um, move in and out of big cities to small towns to smaller cities or come back however many times you want. And there are choices that you can uh, sort of weigh against and see which one is the better and you can grab it. And that is is different from what, let's say, our parents or maybe grandparents' generation when, well, it was pretty standard that you would work one job till you retire. And yeah. there weren't really all that many choices. But also one could argue that maybe at first glance, there are these options. But when you truly come down to that one best choice that you can, um, that is offered to you, you don't really have that many choices. So a lot of these issues, I think you just need to go a bit deeper into and uh, to really get a sense of how hard life could be for people. And also a lot of people decided to leave the big cities at first in the last three years was to quit the rat race, so to speak. And then there are usually two routes. One is go back to, let's say, maybe my hometown is a smaller, is a small town or a very small city or, or um, however big the size or vibrant the local economy is. But some people say that maybe in that smaller pond, mm -hmm. um, actually requires more of the so-called guanxi or the yeah. personal connections. And that's one thing. I know Ding Hong, you have something to share about that. So so keep that thought, okay? And then, so, so there's that one scenario. And the other scenario is that some people, instead of going back to small hometowns or whatnot, um, they would go to a smaller city. And by smaller, it could still be um, by international standard, a big city that is like a regional economic hub of China that still has maybe like 15 million people living there. And um, and there are some opportunities there. And um, that's the kind of situation where you mentioned earlier on sort of like this person with some qualifications and work experience and mega Chinese cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and then they parachute there with these qualifications and uh, the boss kind of expect you to bring the so-called first tier city company experience and cachet and you're expected to perform and sometimes they're paid really well yeah. but you're also under this pressure that if you don't live up to the expectation you could be out so 
So it's not so easy. And Ding Hong, yes, I know you have something to share here. <laughs> yeah, indeed, I really agree in both of these two points. And、uh, overall, it's really difficult to generalize right here. So yeah, regarding this、uh, Guanxi point, this is something I think I have a certain authority to give my observation、oh, because I because I grew up in a small city and received、mm. my. Uh, primary, middle school, and high school education in small city until I came to Beijing more than a decade ago, right? So my observation is that really I think、uh, you're right, Heyang, in this point that、um, in smaller cities, if you want to find a good employment opportunity, if you want to get something done, really the so-called、uh, relationship or guanxi or human resources network matters a lot. Sometimes it's it, it matters. Like seventy or even eighty percent, your real education level, your real qualification does not really matter. Didn't really matter. I think that was the old situation. So I think for people who have been living in these smaller cities all their life, it's pretty okay because they're used to this kind of、um, you know human social norm, right?、Mm-hmm. This kind of human interaction. You help me, and I. Uh, when there is an opportunity, I help you back, right? I give back this help. It's、um, more like、um, it. Overall, it's a kind of a equality-based、uh, social norm as well. I would argue. But、um, for young people who have, you know, lived and worked in big cities, and they're more used to this kind of a more transparent,、mm-hmm. rules-based social norm. Yeah, it's really difficult when they go back to smaller cities for them to. Uh, go back to that kind of、yeah. particular norm I mentioned earlier. So, so I think that's part of the reason, actually a leading reason, why many of these young people are coming back to big cities、yeah. because they simply cannot get used to the that pattern. Yeah, and also just by looking at the original article that you cited from the top, Ding Hong, it also mentioned one of those interesting caveats. That is for those who say, "Oh, now I." Quit the rat race. I've retreated to the idyllic lifestyle, and、um, now I'm back to my hometown near parents, and、uh, life is great. There is one condition that is often the so-called、uh, did you say social or human capital, so、mm-hmm. to speak. That is hereditary. You get it from your parents, and for young people who don't have that. Coming from a smaller town or a city or whatnot, they don't have that to fall back on. And then it seems like the better opportunity is actually you fight for your life according to your own abilities and fight for a better future in a bigger pond. And that could be a big city where there are more opportunities. When It feels like people are, in a way, on a more equal footing in getting jobs, in、um, getting a promotion or、yes. whatnot. But of course, you know, not everything is one hundred percent clean cut like that. And then, you know, there are other factors in play when we talk about, oh, why does this person get a promotion and not the other person? But overall, when You look at the labor force in general. Then there are more opportunities for people in bigger cities in that sense, especially if there are some of these sectors or、um, yeah. you know specialized areas. Maybe a small city or town simply doesn't have the 
industry or so many job posts to fulfill in that sense. Yeah. yeah. So really, I think of for another going back to this point regarding how smaller regions or smaller cities can better attract first year top notch talent from bigger cities. I think this Guanxi based social norm is something they need to move to reform. And actually, there are changes. Uh, I would say it's uh, becoming a fading social norm among the younger generation. So、mm. things are changing. Right. And also for some of the smaller local jurisdictions in China, if the biggest employer of that locality is the local government, then it says something about the local economy and about how many jobs there are available for people. And then it almost just drives people outside of this place because you got to find Those opportunities, and they're simply not there in that small place. And we see that a lot of the smaller towns and cities—they're looking to develop as well. And it has to be the overall economy grows, however big or small this size of place we're talking about. That can offer new jobs, can create new jobs, and offer young people hope in that sense. Well. I'm also from a very small town in the United Kingdom that has struggled a lot over the last half a century, and it's on the northeast coast of England, which basically means that it's quite difficult to get to. And one of the main factors, one of the main reasons I think my town struggles and a lot of places struggle, is transportation. I think that it's something that's often quite overlooked by a lot of people: the importance of transportation. If cities Are transportation hubs. If it's very easy to get in and out of them, if they're well connected to surrounding cities, if the transportation is quick, if it's regular, if it's convenient, then those cities often start to prosper. Why are most cities built on lakes?、Mm. Right. Of course, waters are sources of life, but also initially, waters, rivers were sources of. They were means of transportation, right? And that means that you can trade. People can move through. One of the main reasons my city、uh, is struggles is because there's only one train station there, and in order to get there, you have to rely on the next closest city to be running that train.、Um, so that's definitely something that can be improved. Recently, I was lucky enough to go to Yunnan, and I went to Shangri-La,、mm. and I know that there is a high-speed rail service that is going to be open there this year. That is. Going to do wonders for that place. Of course,、uh, it's going to be much easier to get there, and I'm sure、um, the tourism, the the investment that they'll get from the tourism, is going to be、uh, pretty lucrative, right? Oh, that sounds great. Very good point, Josh. I, I think that's、um, that that is something that people will need to consider. But when we talk about people coming back into the big cities, are things all that rosy? For them, um, no, not by no means. For some people, when they came back to big cities, they find, uh, well, the housing prices have、uh, further risen, and yeah, that's they find it very difficult to afford, and it will take some time for them to to return to their old normalcy. So it's really about a change of. Daily life, pace of life. They need to go back to this so-called, you know, hustle culture. They need to go back to this kind of、uh, very crowded subway, bus system, etc., etc. 
it's really not that easy. And uh, I think one thing、uh, it's worth mentioning here is that not all people are coming back, right?、Mm-hmm. Some people who left the big cities are happy to stay in their hometowns. They successfully built their career and even launched some startup businesses. They stay closer to their family. So yeah, again, it's very difficult to generalize. So as I mentioned previously, I think that the COVID pandemic working context is very different to the context that we have now, the social working context that we have now. But although I think things will somewhat go back to how they were before the pandemic, I still do think that some things have permanently changed. And I think one of those things is definitely、um, our ideas about. The amount of time that we actually have to spend in the office, and we've seen examples, for example, from my own country in the UK, with the trial of the four-day work week,、mm. and also people having hybrid working systems when it comes to working from home. Some of the week being in office, I think some of these things are definitely here to stay. So it's going to be interesting. To see what the future holds. Yes, and it's always great to hear these different case scenarios in different countries. Because personally, I'm not all that optimistic about hybrid work in China. Because, well, this is not something that so many employees are so happy about. But however, the reality seems like the main workforce is back in the office, and you still need to endure the. Commute, the congestion, and also all the things that you like or dislike in the office. You're listening to Roundtable. We'll be back after this break. The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid 19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures, and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hanyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the Audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast "Books and Beyond" and find "My Life in China and America." Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Rantable with myself, Hu Yang. I'm joined by Ding Heng in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, we turn it over to you. Your question or comment, our discussion on this or that bewildering topic in business, work, life, or entertainment today in Rantable's Heart to Heart. Send us a voice memo or email to ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured. The show and a recent rage survey in the U.S. Rage, by the way, being their word, not mine, found a record level of product and service problems incite surly customers to yell more and seek revenge for their hassles. Thus, gives rise to rage reviews and reviewers' remorse. 
what gives. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcasts. When you're there and you're so inclined, please give us a five star review. It will help other folks find the show. Now let's have a moment of heart to heart. You ask. We answer. Roundtable, heart to heart. For today's heart to heart segment, we have an email question from Xiao Chuan in Beijing. Here it goes. Hi, Roundtable team. I found your podcast during COVID quarantine and have been listening since. Thanks for making this great program. In the last couple of weeks, I've been obsessed with the video game turned hit TV series *The Last of Us*. I want to know if you shared the love for the show. He Young doesn't play video games, but I think He Young likes zombies. I think Josh will watch the show. Huang Shen will probably not. Am I right? And do you think we will see more video game-inspired movies and TV series in the future? Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Xiao Chuan, for your email question. And well, Josh, do you or do you not watch the show? <laughs> I have watched one episode. Oh, okay. And so I hope that I will get no spoilers during this show because I know <laughs> that there's somebody on this panel that has watched them all. But I、um, have thoroughly enjoyed. The first episode, and I, one of the main reasons that I took a while to watch it, I probably would have watched it, was because I heard it was so good. So I wanted to make sure that I had a bit of time, and I was, been, I've been so busy these last few weeks that、um, I knew I'd probably get hooked, and、uh, I didn't want to start watching it while I was busy because I knew it was going to be so good. Anyway,、um, okay, I've watched the first episode, and I'm very impressed so far. That's.、Yeah. Wonderful. So our listener Seltron predicted correctly in that sense. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, and I checked with Huang Shen right before the show, and、uh, Seltron, you got it right again. She has not and does not plan to watch The Last of Us, and you got one thing wrong. He Young does not like zombies. Why would you think of me like that? <laughs> But I thoroughly enjoyed the show, and yes, in the name of being prepared, professional, and ready for today's recording, I made sure that I watched the season finale last night. So there you have it. And、uh, yeah, so I think Xiao Chuan, you you're kind of like almost like a fly on the wall. How do you know us so well? And Ding Hong, I can't really. Tell if you have watched this show or not. So yes or no? No.、Uh, okay. Okay. So, <laughs> do you play video games? Nope. Okay. So, <laughs> but I know you do research, so we will have a discussion about、yeah. you know the maybe、uh, long term effect of video games now in movies and TV series. What is that going to be like for those who don't play video games but are interested in? The landscape of TV.、Um, Josh, could you bring us up to speed on how come this show is so popular around the world? This latest HBO hit. Well, I think, like a lot of HBO shows in the last decade, it's just brilliantly written, and 
I think that the video game as well, although I'm not a gamer myself, I'm reasonably familiar with this video game series just because of how well it is written as well. And I think that the TV series stays reasonably true to the video game series. There's a lot of similar scenes in it, the same scenes from the video game, um, same locations, and there's even some of the same dialogue. And I think really what this is, and this is to take absolutely nothing away from the writers and the producers and the actors and everybody involved with the TV series, but it also is really illustrative to me of how far video games have come as well with their narratives and storytellings. And I think that it's it's just a, a, a fantastic time for TV and also video games. And I, I think that The Last of Us, for a long time, I've known that it's been very special as a video game franchise because of how good the story is. Mm. And so it's pretty cool to see this this kind of crossover and how successful it's being. Yeah, well, how successful are we talking about of this video game turned TV series? So basically, according to the data I have gathered, um, this game is joining the premium cable, the HBO premium cable channel's second biggest debut over the last 13 years, behind only the House of Dragon. And The Last of Us has uh, debuted on Nielsen's weekly streaming top 10 ranking with 837 million minutes watched from January the 16th to January the 22nd. That was the the first full week that the first episode was available on HBO Max. So I think these figures tells a lot. Right. And also um, it was, okay, without spoiling anything for Josh or our listeners out there, but episode three is the defining episode, a standalone episode that apparently generated so much discussion on Twitter, Facebook, everywhere on the internet that kind of set this show apart to the other apocalypse shows. And Josh, I'm so jealous of you because you're going to experience it for the very first time and you won't know what's coming up and you will be surprised. And it just leads you to all these twists and turns. And then just when you were thinking, oh, this is a horrible world, civilization is in ruins, but then you'll, ah, there, I can't say it. And then you will feel that there is um, a great um, and also tear jerking turn and it will just solidify your faith and confidence in human race again and um anybody who does not cry watching that that episode i would say that person probably has a a heart of stone let's just say it that way and um it's wonderful i don't think i gave anything away (laughs) okay so this hbo series the last of us is a huge hit and it offers a novel fungus-based twist on a zombie apocalypse so What I think it's really special about it um, maybe has something to do with the fact that it's got such a global, solid 
video fan base who are so fiercely protective of these main characters and then they know the game so well so it's almost like you've got this built-in audience and the advantage of that is you've got people excited and interested about it. And also, don't forget, there is the replay factor in video games. You're talking about millions of people who've been these characters multiple times. And they have sort of gotten into the brains of these characters. And they were these characters themselves with all the reliving bouncing mm. back from a lot of the like zombie attacks and other things so they know what it's like to to be these characters and to see that on screen and to feel that their experience has been relived or satisfied then that's something very special about the video game turned movies and tvs but the downside is when you've got so many people so tuned in and immersed in these characters, then if you don't live up to their expectation, then they will reject this product. They will share online how much they don't like it. So I think that's one maybe special feature of these video turned media products because these adaptations will in a way easily garner acclaim. On the other hand, it might also backfire quite easily as well. So considering that there are so many video games out there with so many players yeah. hooked to the uh, franchises, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more adaptations of video games into other media products. But whether they can be this successful, I think is... A different question yeah yeah i think uh you know before i came onto the show today i checked some of the uh u.s media review of this particular tv drama and uh you know although i have not personally watched it but uh i think uh, there is a reason behind its success because it uh, took a lot of time to carefully you know craft and develop even the most intricate uh, details and it's really hard to deny that it's incredible faith in the source material it does not necessarily reinvent this kind of um post-apocalypse genre but um you know compared to the game i think little of the series is really devoted to those grisly kills or relentless gore uh, the, the violence is mostly emotional so yeah, so mm -hmm. a lot of um <laughs> Yeah, a lot I, of I see what you mean. And in the game, apparently, I checked one with one of the hardcore fans of this video game. He said that in the game there's a lot of violence and it's okay because part of the game is about Yeah. <laughs> is about that. But when you've no longer got the gameplay element in the TV show and too much violence or repeated gore, it just kind of bores people in a way. It, it doesn't have the same effect or violence plays a different kind of role in this different medium of entertainment. And therefore, the creators of the show did a brilliant job in managing just the right amount of violence that can drive the storyline and 
also can add flavor to the story. And personally, I wouldn't mind if there were more zombies because these zombie makeup is incredible and the acting of zombies was incredible as well so yeah but most importantly i find is the relationships are very grounding and that's rare in tv all of the successful tv shows and movies have these very moving gut-wrenching and touching relationships between the characters and they're believable and they make you want to root for them and i think that's a really important part of making a show successful and this one it did not um, fail our expectation in that sense so josh do you see that voice video game adaptations of movies and tv series are going to be mainstream in the future I think probably more and more so. And I think really the reason for that is just because of how how much progress there's been in video games and the amount of investment that there's gone into video game narratives. And as graphics get better in video games, they really are becoming more and more like movies, more like CGI mm. movies. And uh, eventually it will come to a point where it will be quite difficult to distinguish between the quality of Um, a Hollywood blockbuster or whatever movie is shot in whatever camera quality and also playing a video game in the same quality. So I think that there's definitely is going to be a lot more crossover in medium. And and, and I truly believe that in the near future, there may be even some sort of medium that is both film and video game at the Ah. same time. We already kind of have this, but I think something like that is on the horizon. Yeah, that sounds about right. And that sounds Mm. like a brilliant idea, because if you can sort of tap into these different users slash audience groups at the same time, that sounds like a great business. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know what? The current situation very much reminds me of uh, another Chinese TV drama. It was a huge hit when I was a teenager back in 2005, 2006. Yes, that that's time. when it came out. Yeah, it's called uh, The Legend of Sword and Fairy. Wow, yeah, it's also a game-adapted TV series. And yeah, that was really seen as the, the, the founding father of this genre called Xianxia Xuanhuan, right? Xianxia Xuanhuan drama, like fantasy, fairy-themed swordsmen, wuxia, um, (laughs) all elements together, but also have beautiful people playing the uh, Uh main characters. And what you just mentioned, Ding Hung, that pretty much sort of started off this new genre now. But uh, look, it's still popular today as a genre, but it's almost like, you know, the, the first show still seems to be the best mm, yeah. for a lot of people yeah. yeah it's still so iconic you know looking back but you know having said that being said i think the successful adaptation in one particular case as we're talking about here does not necessarily confirm that all future endeavors or attempts will necessarily rock because it really significantly depends on how it is planned like other games that rely more uh, on things like heavy uh, gameplay oh, elements, yeah. they will make, um, this kind of um, games will make adaptation a bit more complicated. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And also, I think the story is so essential to whether it's good or not, whether this thing will fly or not. Because with The Last of Us, the story is unbelievable. And the characters, they go through so much and then you grow with them when you're watching. And yeah, Josh is covering his ears and and I'll try my best not to break the rule of um, today's heart to heart and don't give away too much. Um, so you see how this man who is initially broken, how he sort of deals with grief and how he lives in a world that is about survival and gradually sort of you see these little nuggets of of humanity of happiness and then you really cheer for them and you really sort of grab on to them because what's so amazing about the genre of zombie apocalypse shows is that it puts you in that extreme situation at the end of humanity what locates what makes us human and i think it's those questions that also make the whole show intriguing and it adds gravity to the the violence the the twists and turns of the plot and um yeah it is a show that is kind of violent so i wouldn't recommend little kids to watch it if you like what you hear send us your questions to ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com coming up next when it comes to customer reviews why do we see more people venting their spleen on the internet stick around and we'll find out more on that Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of Roundtable with myself, He Yang. I am joined by Ding Hong in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. According to the American National Customer Rage Survey, Yes, there's such a thing. Nearly a quarter of U.S. customers with a serious gripe about products or services post their complaints on social media now. And there are apparently a rise of numbers of complaints. Ding Kung, could you offer us a comparison? Basically, in the 1976 U.S. National Customer Rate Survey, a similar survey. The same uh, survey. The same survey, not similar, right? Researchers found 32% of Americans had experienced issues in the consumer marketplace in the previous 12 months. This time around, the figure has increased to 74%, up from 66% in 2020, the last time this particular study was conducted. And according to the U.S. National Customer Rate Survey, since the pandemic, the percentage of customers seeking revenge on a company they feel that has treated them very badly has tripled from 3% to somewhere around 9%. So, yeah, it's mm-hmm. um, staggering. <laughs> Why are there so many complaints, Josh? Well... There's a lot of ways that we can speak about this. I mean, first of all, I think it's interesting. Uh, an important point to note is why there are 
so many negative reviews as opposed to positive ones. And there's quite a lot of research to suggest that when somebody has a negative experience, that is um, because of a heightened emotional response, um, more emotional, more heightened than uh, if you had a positive experience. And I think that this rings pretty true for most people, right? We remember those times when we had a terrible meal um, and it makes you angry, you feel wronged, and it's probably more likely to provoke people to write a negative review. So that means that when we weigh negative and positive reviews, it's quite difficult to really gauge how accurate that is and how mm. accurately that, for example, restaurant or wherever, wherever it might be, maybe being represented online. Now, why this has become more common during COVID, now, there's... I think a lot of the reasons for this can be quite speculative, to be honest. But And so I can only speculate that it's because so many more people are ordering things online, be it food, drink, um, and also just e-commerce in general. And I think because people have started to live their lives more online, they've started to communicate more online, maybe work online um, more than before the pandemic. And I think this maybe has prompted a heightened response online and this is filtered through to reviews as well yeah and it might have something to do with we simply have so many products and services more sophisticated and interconnected these days thanks in part to technology and there are a lot of these products that are not that people are not completely satisfied with the service either. And therefore, now you kind of just have to go online, even with the um, customer's complaint. And it's a very different dynamic as opposed to what it was in 1976 in the US or in the world, you know. And also, according to some experts looking at this survey. An aggravating factor is the tight labor market, which many employers are still struggling to hire enough experienced and qualified workers. And that includes in the service sector, the customer complaints department as well, and um, handling complaints in a very professional way could sometimes ease the rage a little bit, but it doesn't always work that way. And what do you think explains people sort of going online with this um, angry review that they write? And there's the term rage review. And apparently people do have heart. Once after writing that review and clicking send, and then everybody can see it on the page, some people also feel what's called reviewers remorse Whoa. so <laughs> that's quite the like high and low of things do you think that the chinese consumer would sort of feel something similar of a mood swing by the sound of it of um just like the american counterparts yeah this is a pretty difficult question for me personally because um yeah i rarely shop online um, do you write reviews at all no, not necessarily. <laughs> Don't you want other people to know the experience, either if it's really good or not very good, but 
you know, other people can sort of um, mm. get an idea. And also, it's like you're exercising some power as well. What you say here could be affecting other people's choices. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, sometimes I think it's more like uh, they have some personal anger that they want to vent, mm. not necessarily because of the things they have bought, or because of the perceived poor services they have received from businesses. Sometimes it's because they have other grievances or other sources of frustration. So that's a channel for them to release their frustration. And in this regard, I think it's a it's actually a pretty positive thing. Because, um, yeah, because uh, if these uh, dealers and business owners can respond in a professional manner rather than, you know, like uh, refraining from arguing with them, giving all kinds of uh, useless, vague explanation, you know, responding with a smile or apology. I'm not sure how much apology would work, but uh, yeah, professionalism is very much required if your response can be professional, then yeah, maybe this customer will go back to you sometime in the future. What's a good response from the vendors, dealers, companies to these angry customers who are ready, if not already left a revenge review, Josh? Well, I think that generally in life, it's always good to respond calmly. And it people see calmness and restraint as a sign of strength, actually. So I think that it is important to respond, but it's probably the best way is to re uh, to respond calmly. However, I have seen in recent years that a lot of big companies have become quite savvy to how to use social media and also use review sites and things like this to their advantage to improve their image. For example, I've seen that on Twitter, uh, and Instagram, uh, two of the biggest social media platforms uh, in the West, that a lot of big companies are, rather than being so restrained and sort of thinking about their image all the time online, they've actually started to be a little bit cheeky mm -hmm. and even make jokes at the expense of, for example, other companies. Or if they get a bad review or some trolls online giving them hate comments, instead of saying, I'm very sorry for your experience, they will troll them back. And this has actually uh, gained them a lot of respect and people have been laughing at them and um, it's given them a better image. So if done in the right way, if it's genuinely done in a funny way, it can also work to the business's advantage. Um, but it really depends. And I guess that high risk, high reward for this kind of thing. So uh, you've got to be very careful. But generally, I think the safest bet is to be measured and calm and apologetic and the customer is always right but not all the time most of the time let's just put it that <laughs> way <laughs> since we're customers <laughs> you're listening to roundtable and that brings us to the end of today's roundtable thank you so much ding hung and josh cotterell for joining the discussion i'm he young we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>